Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares, and by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom Podcast. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of the show. The theme of this show and the last symptom body of work as a whole is accurate insights about emotional health and emotional unhealth, as well as authentic recovery from emotional disorders such as borderline personality disorder. I had it, you know, for the first 35 years of my life, completely oblivious to the fact that that I was living with a disorder and now I really don't have it and so I share the experience of how I got from there to here with others nowadays to help them do the same. Today's primary topic will be about what a healthy and appropriate apology process looks like and exactly why it looks that way. I originally intended to discuss this topic last week because it's meant as a compliment to episode 5 of this season which dealt with my dad and his consistent disregard for boundaries and his obliviousness to uh, to these sorts of things I also want to talk a little bit about Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie who have been an intense focus in the news here in the U.S. lately uh, you know, I, I try to keep on top of the news. It's not easy these days because I don't have a lot of respect for journalists and I don't have a lot of respect for news organizations. So um, I'm very discerning. I'm very discerning about who I get my news from. But when a big story hits and everybody's talking about the same thing, one thing I like to do is I like to go through all the different reputable news sources and I say reputable with a tremendous sense of irony because I don't think any of them are I shouldn't say that there are a couple who I think um, really place value on traditional journalistic principles but they are so in the minority that it's it's not it's not even funny but so I there I do have a couple that I daily get my news from but when a big story is happening what I'll do is I'll go and I'll see what everybody else is saying about it because I want to see if uh, any more details come out uh, you know things like that so anyway uh, this Gabby Petito and Brian Laundry story is one of those stories and the reason why it was interesting to me is because of my work here with The Last Symptom but also it was kind of 
attractive to me the fact that they uh, they seem to enjoy the natural world and getting out and uh, doing some adventurous things like that. We'll talk about them en- uh, enough here in just a little bit. I have a campfire story at the end of the show that I want to share with you. And it's a, I don't want to give too much away right now, but it was a story. <laughs> uh, the story is about uh, a young kid named Jose. And <laughs> when I told him that uh, Bat- Batman's sister lived next door to me. So <laughs> I'll tell you all about that towards the end of the show. Before we get into all the fun stuff, I have to make some announcements, so please bear with me. These things are important. They they help people find the resources I offer, and uh, they also help people support my work if they're so inclined to do so. So it's something I need to talk about. But don't you go fast-forwarding through it, because right in the middle of it might be when I decide to tell that uh, Jose Batman story. TheLastSymptom.com is my website full of free resources for you to take advantage of. There are also a few modest paid services available at thelastsymptom.com. Those help support my overall body of work. And those paid services are one-on-one phone and Zoom conversations with me. And most importantly, the Last Symptom Fundamentals course which is a pre-recorded intensive video course for those interested in authentic and permanent recovery from emotional disorder such as borderline personality disorder. To access these things at thelastsymptom.com, you just go to the paid services tab. If you're curious about what it's like taking the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, just imagine a pre-recorded online college course. It's just like that. If you'd like to experience a chapter of this course at no cost to you, visit the Last Symptom YouTube channel and search for the video titled Sneak Peek colon The Last Symptom Fundamentals Pre-Recorded Course Day 3 Chapter 9. How long did that take me? It took me like 30 seconds and yet I got people out there saying that I spend I dedicate the majority of this show to talking about that thing uh, but I talked about that enough in last week's episode so we won't go into it here I will tell you that I got an, uh, a, a very respectful email uh, asking me to delete that episode of the last symptom podcast uh, my answer to that very respectful email which I did appreciate is no I'm not going to delete it because the person I'm sure is not going to delete their negative review that prompted that episode and there are consequences you know the idea the idea that uh, this person wrote that in a fit of borderline personality disorder splitting or something like that is reason enough for her not to have to face the consequence of me then doing a show about that that review and breaking down why it wasn't a reasonable review or a fair review and why it was expressed a lot of falsehoods. The idea that just because she has an emotional disorder 
that she shouldn't be held to consequences is not a healthy uh, line of reasoning. So she made the review. She, she posted it publicly. I responded with a public episode of this show breaking down what, all the reasons why it wasn't fair and why it expressed a lot of falsehoods. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that she's not out there deleting her review, and so I'm not deleting my episode. And even if she were to de- delete her review, uh, there are consequences. I, I live with consequences, don't you? If you don't, there's some, you're not healthy. There's something wrong in your life. We all have to deal with the consequences of our decisions. And um, so that's that's why I'm not going to delete that episode. And um, hopefully people can see the healthy reasoning for that. Uh, the last symptom, online community is no longer on Facebook. Now, there is a group on Facebook. It's the original group on Facebook, but it's not active. Nothing's happening there. So the online community, the active and happening online community for the last symptom is no longer on Facebook. It's now on a a platform called Locals, L-O-C-A-L-S. You can join us there by visiting thelastsymptom.locals.com. L-O-C-A-L-S dot com and the last announcement I'll make here today is that donations continue to be an important and valued support for my work so if you're uh, if you're if you got the itch to make a donation you can do so at thelastsymptom.com in the donate slash sponsor tab now let me tell you the story of Gabby Petito, age 22, and Brian Lundry, Laundry, Lundry, I think it's Laundry, 23, and we'll uh, take a nice long hard look here at what fake horseshit love looks like. It's not even love, but that's what people call it. I'm sure many of you listening believe that your notions of love really represent love that and uh, we'll, we'll just we'll talk about it today to see if that's true if they really do these two spent their summer traveling in a white van through the american west while gabby posted about their adventures across social media how you reckon she presented their relationship on social media and their experience of uh, traveling across the country. Well, of course, these were pictures of them smiling and kissing and hugging and hanging all over each other like possums, putting forth this image of perfect bliss and happiness. What a ridiculous thing. The irrational compulsion of unhealthy people to be brainlessly driven to putting in all of this effort going forth you know going to great lengths to present an illusion of contentment now i should say that i ain't just picking on gabby and brian and i'm not just picking on just any old people who who do this sort of thing this is a phenomenon that is uh 
inseparable from emotional unhealth. And I did it too. My family did it. Uh, Other people in my extended family, they do it. So when I'm talking about these things and being critical, I'm not being critical of the individuals themselves per se, right? I'm not just picking on somebody. But, but I do need to highlight the phenomenon of this feature of emotional unhealth because everybody who is emotionally damaged and unhealthy, they do this. And we're going to talk about why here. This is, just not, this is not just an excuse to pick on people unfairly. Uh, this is a, the reason we're talking about it at all is to analyze it, understand it, escape it. Also, it's going to be important for you, you know, if you're somebody who is escaping this, to be able to go on in your life looking out at the world, not in a judgment, not, uh, not in a judgmental way, but to look out at the world, recognize these things from a mile off, and avoid them in your own lives. I have this uh, thing set up on my phone. My, my daughter has a, a Apple Arcade. But before she can download a game, she has to send me a... uh, She sends a request, or she, you know, tries to download the game. That sends a request to my phone, and then I approve it or I disapprove it, uh, depending on what the game is. And that allows me to keep in touch with the things she's being exposed to. And so I just had a couple of those come through here. You might have heard them on the uh, recording. So I'm just going to approve those real quick. All right, we can get back to our topic of discussion here. So, yeah, I, when I go about my life nowadays, having recovered from these things and knowing now what they are and how to identify them, and I'm looking out at the world and seeing these things in other people, this is not a judgmental thing. I'm not looking at them critically, them as people. You know, my, it would be my hope that everybody would escape these things. Um, I certainly once existed in a state of ignorance and didn't know these things. Um, I don't want people to hold me uh, their evaluations of me to that time in my life, you know. So I recognize that even people now who are living in these ways or, and are ignorant in these sorts of ways, that this is not a reflection on them as people. It's a reflection on their ignorance for sure. But a person doesn't have to remain ignorant. Many of you listening today might identify with a lot of the things that we talk about today. I'm not uh, judgmental about you as a person not being critical about you as a person I'm critical about the, the uh, these approaches to life the ignorance and uh, you know the sometimes uh, purposeful ignorance but I, I recognize that people and the things they do are not one and the same and that people can change so uh, I'd just like you to keep that in mind por favor so ridiculous thing you know them this this obsession or this um, compulsion to put all of this energy and time uh, and it does require a lot of energy and time to create an image of bliss and happiness when you're not blissful or happy have you ever thought about that i mean some of you might know it from personal experience like i said 
did this myself. I always wanted to present my family. You know, when I'd talk to my friends or whatever at school, uh, my family is just the ideal family. It takes a lot of energy to create a narrative and to cover up ugly truths, and that energy could be used for other things. So chew, chew on that for a little bit. People being more concerned about selling an image of contentment rather than using that same energy and effort to just do what's necessary to actually be content genuinely. Well, as you've been following along with the last symptom, hopefully you've begun to understand why unhealthy people do this at all. You know, it's uh, it's fascinating. They're like programmed, predictable, unthinking creatures. And in fact, early on in the last symptom world, I often talked about uh, emotional disorders as being, you know, the cause of them as being a, like a computer algorithm. You know, the algorithm, uh, the algorithm you know once you put that algorithm into place what the program will do because the algorithm tells the program what to do it tells it how to behave and emotional disorders are like that you look out at the world of people you see how they're behaving and acting their compulsions and that they don't even give any thought to whatsoever they just act they just follow the command of the algorithm and you can trace that back and determine almost exactly what type of belief system they live with remember for unhealthy people their whole value system what is their whole value system built on is it built on the idea of inherent value in other words is it built on an an inner value system um does a thing just have value just because just because of what it is nope not for unhealthy people their whole value system is built on external things the only the external so the only value they perceive in things is based on what they imagine the world of people give it what am what am i saying what i'm saying is that a thing only has value dependent on how many people value that thing. If if they don't imagine that the majority of people value that thing, then it doesn't have value, you see. So that whole value system is based on people looking at a thing and liking it or not liking it. Valuing it or not valuing it. So the idea that a thing can just have value whether people value it or not totally foreign to these sorts of people so for example if they imagine that most people have a negative view of bananas then bananas are negative right the the conclusion they reach is that bananas are negative because what determines if it if it's positive or if it has value or not what determines this is what they imagine most people think about bananas so if most people have a negative view of bananas then what is the only value a banana can have to a person like that a a negative low value do you see that uh, from where they stand 
bananas can't have value just on the merit of being a banana it's totally contrary to the way they understand value works now that example might seem too far-fetched but I assure you it is not far-fetched I'm telling you right now it don't matter how tasty bananas are unhealthy people would completely reject bananas as being something of no value if they suspected that the majority of people viewed them as not having value and that's for real they really would turn on bananas and begin perceiving them as absolutely valueless on their own if they imagined that most other people did not view them with value do you see any other natural consequences that come from believing that the value of things is dependent upon what other people think well first of all where does this attitude come from at all it comes from the way parents convince children so at home growing up children are observing their parents attitudes the, the the real attitudes that the parents live with so these children observing parents who live with the real attitudes that value the nature of value and where value comes from works like this this is the conclusion that they themselves reach also so children in these sorts of families they grow up and their understanding of their own value as human beings is not based on what and who they are in other words uh, the value is not based on the fact that they're a human being remember that that sort of value system doesn't exist in this type of worldview a, a thing can't have value just based on what it is value only comes from people looking at it and saying to themselves that has value and the more people you get who look at a thing like that feeling like okay that thing has value that's where the value comes from not that it just is what it is and that it has value because of what it is but only if lots of people view it as having value that's where the value has to come from so these children growing up in families who view the world this way look at themselves and they realize well shoot if that applies to a banana that applies to me too I can't I can't just have value because I'm a person my value is dependent on other people's opinions of me right so it's value that has to be earned and uh, yeah it's really sad because inherent value which all people possess because they're people doesn't have to be earned at all you don't have to earn inherent value you can't earn inherent value and what's more inherent value can't be diminished or taken away 
but do you understand that uh, the perspective here that we're talking about uh, from these unhealthy people from their perspectives a person's value cannot be based on the simple fact that a person is a person that doesn't in any way fit their understanding of how value works and where it comes from same thing with their feelings right i've told you that your feelings always matter your feelings always have value an unhealthy person uh, that doesn't fit their understanding of how value value works at all right in order for their feelings to matter somebody has to first think all right what you're feeling right now matters then it matters but that's that's not the way the real world works. That's not the way uh, your feelings really get their value. The way your feelings really get the value is the fact that they're your feelings. So it doesn't matter if if anybody agrees with what you're feeling. Your feelings still have value. Doesn't matter if anybody values you as a person. You still have value because why? because you're still a person the value is an inherent aspect of what you are so as people they don't perceive their individual value as people as being a natural part of just being a person see because that's perceiving human value as inherent to being human and that's the healthy truth that's the reality but they instead view their individual value as being entirely dependent on other people valuing them first I hope that's making sense the whole value system they live with depends on what other people think so once you begin seeing the real underlying issues at play here the unhealthy perceptions of the nature of these sorts of things you also then begin understanding the true extent of the effects that these sorts of totally unhealthy attitudes have on people and then once you do that it's not surprising whatsoever to see people putting in mountains and I mean mountains of effort to create illusions of things and putting more value on the illusion of it rather than simply putting in that same amount of time and effort into achieving the real deal to in you know putting in that same time and effort to actually enjoy that real reality what matters most to unhealthy people what they imagine others think why because the value of everything in their lives is based on what they imagine others think so they take their white van these this couple we're talking about and they start visiting all the national parks not because this is genuinely what brings them contentment and the actual experience of this contentment is what matters to them Nuh-uh. instead they do it because of how much they imagine other people will admire it they hang on to each other in these pictures like possums 
and go to great lengths to create an illusion of love. Why? Is it because they're in love? No, it's because more than anything else, they value what they imagine other people think. Remember, their entire value system is based on what they imagine other people think. And they think people love the idea of two people in love. So instead of using all that energy and time into actually achieving love in their relationship for real, they channel all the energy and all of their importance is focused on making people just believe it instead because that really is what is most important to them. Think about it. If, if that's your belief system, that all value in life comes from what other people think, that, that is what you will do. That's, that is how you will live. You will live in a way where most of your energy and time and concern goes into what other people think. So, Gabby's Instagram posts abruptly stopped in late August of this year. They just, boop, stop. She's so happy and love. They're hanging all over each other, kissing each other, smooching each other with these great backdrops in the background, you know, all these nature pictures with them expressing just how happy they are everything and then the Instagram post just stop in late August do you see where this is going the two lovebirds who are just so in quote unquote love and live in the dream Brian returned to his parents home in Florida with the van that they were using to travel around but without Gabby his fiance on September 1st. Gabby's family, unable to get in touch with her, reported her missing on September 11th. Gabby's remains were then found in a camping area in a Wyoming forest on September 19th, near where the couple had last been seen. And now, Brian Laundrie is missing and to say that his family doesn't seem to be very cooperative is kind of the understatement of all time some might say they are proactively really going out of their way to aid and abet a murderer and actively trying to hinder any quick resolution to this whole ordeal I wouldn't go so far as to say that myself but others probably have or would Here's what NBC News had to say about this young dating couple. Before 22-year-old Gabby Petito went missing, she and her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, were in love. Yeah, they were in love, you see, and they were ready to embark on the road trip of a lifetime. Why is it so many people seem unable to look at the most obvious things in the world and identify them properly. How can anybody with a straight face go on to describe an environment of angst, stress, pain, selfishness, frustration, and sadness 
as NBC News is about to do and that I'm about to share with you. And then with a straight face, categorize that as love. NBC News does it here with absolutely no sense of irony or embarrassment whatsoever. Anybody with the brain of a guinea hen already knows that NBC News is a totally fraudulent and corrupt source of reliable and accurate information anyway. But the fact that they call this love after what you're about to hear just shows you the extent of their incompetence as intellectuals. Do me a favor. Sometime this week, when when you get a chance, if you get a chance, I'd just ask you to take a moment to sit down, close your eyes, and imagine the sort of environment authentic love would just naturally create. What sorts of what sort of natural conditions an environment would authentic love naturally create. When you think of love as a quality and how it has to behave, it has to behave, you know, being love and everything, in other words, the purest and most good quality in the universe, right? That's what love is. It's the purest and most good quality in the universe. So close your eyes and imagine what sorts of conditions or environment you would naturally expect. What would you naturally expect to see anywhere love is truly existing? Remind yourself it's the purest and most good quality in the universe. Love. Now, if you look out at some family or any relationship or even if you just examine your own relationship and the conditions you observe don't fit what you imagined love would naturally give birth to what conclusion can you draw? What conclusion can you draw? Well that ain't love. See that's not hard at all. That, it does not take a, a, a rocket scientist to draw that obvious conclusion. Strong feeling, you might be saying to yourself, All right, but yeah, but I feel like I'm really in love. I feel lots of strong things. It's so? <laughs> Are you saying that what you feel is a better gauge, a, a better determiner of these things than the obvious environment of chaos that 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 is there what you feel is not a demonstration of facts all right so you might feel lots of things but what you feel is not what determines love you're probably imagining strong feelings of attraction Right, I've felt that lots of times in my life. Very intense, powerful feelings of attraction. Strong feelings of attraction is not love. 
Strong feelings of attraction can be based on all sorts of unhealthy, selfish, self-centered things. Right? Think about it. Just because I want a thing, and I'm attracted to it, and I desire it, that is not love. So how people feel is not what determines love. Love is determined by attitudes, behaviors, and the peaceful, patient, kind, and serene sorts of environment and conditions that it naturally gives birth to. Identify love for real as as simple as the exercise I just gave you. If it doesn't look like love, uh, remembering what Jordan would always say, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. If it doesn't look like a duck, it doesn't quack like a duck, it doesn't behave like a duck, it ain't a freaking duck. So if it don't look like love, if it don't behave like love, and it doesn't naturally give birth to serene peaceful conditions like love then it ain't love period it don't matter how attracted you feel or how much you think you need another person or how much you can't imagine life without him or her all of those things are selfish and self-centered can't you see that those are based on selfish and self-centered things what what it does for me what it what i want what I crave, what I desire. And love is not that. Get a pen and jot this down. Or, you know, open the notes app on your phone. Love, by its inherent nature, and do you appreciate what I'm saying when I say by its inherent nature? I'm saying there's no other alternative. So it's like ice is cold, right? And if you find hot ice, that ain't ice. So love, by its inherent nature, naturally gives birth to these things. It creates an environment that is a refuge, a refuge from stress, fear, worry, pain, jealousy, selfishness, angst, frustration, sadness, mistreatment, and other negative, unhappy things. Remember, we're talking about a quality that is the apex of goodness and what is fine in the world. There, there's no other quality that, that, that outweighs it as far as goodness goes, right? So I'm going to say it again if you got your pen. Love, by its inherent nature creates an environment that is a refuge from stress, fear, worry, pain, jealousy, selfishness, angst, frustration, sadness, mistreatment, and other negative unhappy things. The idea is that the world is full of these negative things these the pain and fear and worry and jealousy and all these things when you're with somebody who loves you 
and you come to them at the end of the workday or whatever, if they love you for real, if they're experiencing that quality for you, toward you, then when you come to them, they should be a refuge from these things. So, if your relationship choice doesn't feel like a refuge from these things, but instead it contributes regularly, regularly, to stress, fear, worry, pain, jealousy, selfishness, angst, frustration, sadness, mistreatment, and other negative unhappy things in your life, well, you can now stop lying to yourself and others or being purposefully ignorant by talking about this relationship you're in and thinking about it as love. That's not love. Calling it love is blasphemy. You're blaspheming about one of the purest and greatest qualities that exists and making a mockery out of it. Don't do that. Don't be a dummy. A purposeful dummy. You know, it's the worst kind of dummy. Is the purposeful dummy. So, now with all these things in context, and with a greater appreciation for what love really is and what it really ain't, let's continue the Gabby and Brian story. The couple began a cross-country tour of national parks in July documenting their journey on YouTube and Instagram using the hashtag van life. Gabby and Brian met in high school, Gabby's mother said, and announced their engagement last year. Brian asked me to marry him and I said yes, Gabby wrote on Instagram again. Creating a totally horseshit narrative. You make life feel unreal, and every day is such a dream with you, she says. Remember, let's put that into context. What is What was her most important thing in life? Was it actually being happy? Really being in love? And things like that? No. What was most important to her, and I hate to speak poorly of the dead, but this is just the, the darn truth. What was most important to her was what other people thought so that's the context while she's posting this on Instagram and on Facebook the reward for her is not in whether she's really happy and any of that stuff the reward is in selling the illusion so that lots of people will think she's happy right people thinking she's happy is actually more valuable to her than being happy it's heartbreaking so again only concerned about uh, people believing that she was just living the dream rather than actually experiencing those things Gabby of Blue Point New York later moved to Northport Florida to live with Brian Gabby's mother said this year's road trip wasn't Gabby's first she documented a western bound trip on Instagram in 2019. In January 2020, 
In a post, she said, driving across the country to California and Oregon was an absolute dream. Of course, <laughs> everything is just at the max, right? It's just the max. It's just the best of everything. She's always just so happy, and everything's just so perfect all the time. It's just the, again, you're, we've got the context of knowing why, why she's trying to sell this so hard. In May 2020, she posted that she couldn't wait to get back to traveling the world with Brian. Because life is just so blissful. On August 12th, police in Moab, Utah, responded to a report of a domestic problem between Gabby and Brian. It happened as Gabby and Brian were driving, according to a police report. A responding officer reported that the couple's van was traveling at about 45 miles per hour in a 15 mile per hour zone. As the officer turned on the lights to pull over the van, it swerved and hit a curb before coming to a stop, according to the report. Another officer wrote that Gabby had slapped Brian after an argument, at which point Brian allegedly attempted to lock her out of the van. She forced her way back in before Brian drove off, according to the report. Sounding like love to you, folks? Huh? Does it sound like real love to you? Or are you disregarding everything I've told you and saying, well, they felt love, right? They thought they felt what they had, what they thought was love, and that's what matters. Well, the the facts, the the environment here that we're looking at, is not bearing that out. No, it's not bearing the evidence out that that was love. If it if it doesn't look like a duck, and it duck don't quack like a duck, don't waddle like a duck. It ain't love. It ain't love. So um, the two told the officer that. Again, here makes me want to puke. They're in love and engaged to be married and desperately didn't want to see anyone charged with uh, charged with a crime, according to the report. So you got that? They just got done slapping and knocking the shit out of each other and locking each other out of the van and uh, just about crashing the van. And this is love. Again, sit back in your chair, close your eyes. Imagine what the, the most, the purest most good quality in the universe gives birth to now imagine this situation here and see if those two things are harmonious they ain't this isn't love these people don't know what love is the pair was told to separate for the night with Gabby maintaining possession of the van body cam footage released Thursday also captured some of the encounter with police it showed an officer talking to Brian and an emotional Gabby after authorities pulled over the van. Gabby could be seen wiping away tears. I'm sorry, Gabby said after the officer asked why she was crying. We'd just been fighting this morning, some personal issues. Just totally normal. This is just totally normal as could be. All people do this. Brian added, it was a long day. We were camping yesterday. When the officer asked Brian about scratches on his face, he responded, she had her phone and was trying to get the keys from me. More love. Look at all that love there. It's exactly the way it behaves, isn't it? You're scratching people in the face, fighting, struggling over things, almost wrecking the car. And that is love, right? The purest, uh, most attractive quality in the universe. And this is how it manifests. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I'm being sarcastic. It's not that I just don't think so. It's that I know so. 
I just, it's bewildering to me how people resist connecting the dots. So there you go. Two people making a total mockery of love with no sense of irony or self-awareness whatsoever and a major news organization in here in the United States contributing to the whole absurdity of talking about love anywhere in the context of this entire story. So that's that. Because it's been in the news, because it's relevant to what we talk about here, I wanted to share it. Now let's get into today's primary topic, which is not about love, believe it or not. Although in a way, I guess it is about love. Because love causes a person to always be quick to admit when they're at fault. But today's primary topic specifically is about apologies. Do you know how to apologize? Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you think you do, but you never really gave it any thought. Maybe you're wondering why this is something we have to talk about at all. After all, how hard is it really to walk up to somebody and say, I'm sorry. Well, real apologies aren't just saying I'm sorry. And today we're going to talk about why that is. So I've been asking you to imagine a lot of things today. I'm going to do it again. Take a moment to imagine that you're walking around town. You're doing some window shopping. You've got a cup of coffee in your hand from uh, Wawa. If you don't know what Wawa is, then you can imagine the coffee place of your choice. But you've got this Wawa coffee in your hand. It's morning. The birds are chirping. And you're just enjoying a casual day off work as you kind of casually stroll around enjoying the day. Suddenly, a person taps you on the shoulder. And when you turn around, there's a lady standing there. And she says to you, Do you accept responsibility for it? What would be your answer? Do you accept responsibility for it? What would be your answer? You don't know who she is. You have no idea what she's talking about. She just comes up to you out of the blue, taps you on the shoulder, and the only thing she says is, do you accept responsibility for it? What are the odds, standing there with your uh, cup of Wawa coffee in your hand, having never seen this woman before in your life or having, having never talked to her, having no idea what she's talking about, what are the odds that you would say to her, yes, yes I do accept responsibility for it. I'd say the odds of this being your reply are about less than zero. Much more likely, your reply would be something along these lines. Excuse me? Or, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Or maybe, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. 
do I accept responsibility for what exactly? Right? Wouldn't you agree that this would be the much more likely way for this conversation to play out? After all, how can a person be expected to accept responsibility for anything without first knowing what that thing is? How can you accept responsibility for a thing you don't even know what it is? Well, apologizing is a lot like this. It's always interesting to me. When people think they can apologize for a thing that they don't even know what they're apologizing for. <laughs> so, the they think they can apologize for a thing that they can't even see and that they've made no effort whatsoever to see what is an apology supposed to be a reflection of well it's supposed to be a reflection of remorse right so how can you feel remorse for something you don't even understand enough to feel remorse for in the first place? How can you feel remorse for a thing that you can't even see? You don't even know it exists. So now sitting here having this conversation with you, I'm imagining myself or remembering myself rather in my past life as a person with borderline personality disorder married to my ex-wife Diana and I'm remembering me apologizing to her for things I didn't even understand for example she's upset and I know she's upset but I don't really know the subtleties of it but I go upstairs anyway. After enough time has passed, I sit on the edge of the bed, I stroke her arm with my hand, and I say, hey, I know you're upset. I'm sorry, okay, I'm sorry. What am I apologizing for specifically? I don't even know. I don't even know what I'm apologizing for. So am I really sorry? How can I be sorry for something I don't even know, fully understand, that I'm supposed to be sorry for? How can I possibly be sorry for something I don't even see or understand? The answer is that I can't be. That's the answer. I can't be sorry for something I can't even see. Can't be sorry for something that I don't even I I have yet to see. So how much value does the apology have? It has no value at all. In fact, my apology is not an apology at all. You know, kind of like love is not just a feeling. It's not just 
I feel attraction. I feel affection. That's not love. Well, an apology is not just I'm sorry. You know, me saying uh, I'm sorry, me offering an apology for something I don't even know what I fully understand what I'm apologizing for is no different than if I sat on the edge of the bed and said to her, hey, I see you're upset, so how about just not being upset now? Do you see that this is really the only thing I'm after? The only... Me saying I'm sorry is not really expressing remorse. It's just a way of me saying, don't be mad at me anymore. Because the only thing I'm really after is to convince her not to be upset at me anymore. But am I sorry for whatever's making her upset? No, again, how can I be sorry for something that I'm not even aware of, that I can't even see? All I know is that she's upset at me, and if I can say something so that she won't be upset at me anymore, then this is really my driving interest. Do you remember the letter I got from my dad? that I talked about a lot just a couple of episodes back in, in episode 5 do you remember what he was doing he was apologizing and also guessing about what was bothering me um, think about that for a second he was apologizing at the same time he's apologizing, he's guessing about what's bothering me. So how much value did that apology have? He doesn't even know what he's apologizing for. He doesn't even know what he supposedly feels remorse for. So how much value does the apology have? It doesn't have any value. It's not even, it's not even really an apology. So it's absurd because for one well there's a lot of reasons it's absurd the biggest reason it's absurd is because he doesn't have to guess about what is bothering me I've already expressed it to him several times in no uncertain terms but he spends no time thinking about that or if he does because it's not personally important to him Right, because what I'm uh, upset or or um, the injustice that I perceive is not important to him. He says, "Well, I, I don't even need to reflect on that. I don't even need to spend any more time thinking about that." So I'll apologize. I'll try to guess. Well, it's like this, because it's not important to him. There's no value on it whatsoever. So even though I've told him exactly what is upsetting me, exactly the injustice that I'm perceiving, because it it holds no value to him personally, zero value, he brushes it off and says, I'm going to apologize for something else because this can't really be the thing that's bothering him. It's exactly the thing that's really bothering me. That's what he needs to show remorse for. But do you see the, the, the incredibleness of that? 
from his perspective he evaluates this thing and because he spent no time meditating on it evaluating it truly trying to understand it he says well that's not really anything to be upset about so that can't really be the thing that's bothering him so when he apologizes to me totally disregarding the thing that that I view as the the true injustice how much value does his apology have it has zero value because uh, whatever he thinks he's apologizing for is not the thing that I'm viewing as the injustice so he's apologizing for a thing that is not even bothering me meanwhile the thing that really is bothering me he places no value on it's of such little importance to him that he literally sweeps it away as being something of just not not even worth the time to sit and consider so how much value does an apology from him have zero value So he doesn't have to guess about what is bothering me. But he's put himself in this situation of guessing because he disregards what I what I specifically and in, in detailed terms express to him as being totally unimportant. So secondly, the things I told you he expressed regret about are things that are completely irrelevant to me. So, you know, one of the things was spending more time with me when I was a kid yeah sure that's the thing that's really that I'm all tore up about that the man who was the most abusive figure in my life didn't set aside more time to focus on me and be and have more time to be abusive toward me that's what he thinks I'm upset about give me a freaking break of course I'm not upset about that I'm relieved about that so if that's what he's apologizing about something that it's all in his head it's really not even a thing that I the, the, even the idea of it is disgusting to me so he's apologizing for something that he didn't do that that is this, the whole idea of it is disgusting to me and he thinks and so he's apologizing for that how much value does that apology have zero value so when he ended the letter with, I'm sorry, what value did his apology have? It didn't have any value whatsoever. Because you can't apologize for what you can't see in the first place. How can you apologize for a thing you're completely blind to? What are you apologizing for specifically if you don't know what good is the apology? What is I'm sorry specifically meant to express? It's specifically meant to express remorse. So when you say I'm sorry, what you're literally saying to somebody is I am remorseful for dot dot dot. Alright, what are you remorseful for? I'm remorseful that I didn't spend more time with you as a kid. Okay. But you're not spending more time with me as a kid is not what is upsetting to me. That's not the injustice that I'm upset about. And it's that has never been upsetting to me. So then maybe you'll get the generic apology next. Do you know what the uh, generic apology is? The generic apology is this. Well, then I'm just sorry for whatever has you upset. 
Have you ever said that yourself? Or have you ever um, received a fake apology like that yourself? Well, I'm just sorry for whatever has you upset. So, does the generic apology carry any weight or have any value? We've already established it does not. How can you be sorry that is remorseful for something you don't even know about? You can't be. You don't even know what that thing is. So how can you be remorseful about it? The apology is worthless. So the appropriate question to ask somebody who gives you the generic apology, I'm sorry for whatever has you upset. <laughs> you know, it's just like this blanket thing, you know. I'm sorry for it's like a uh, presidential pardon for anything that you might have done. Um, <laughs> so the the correct uh, response to somebody who tries to pull a generic apology on you is this. Oh, really? And so what is it that has me upset? That's what you ask them when they say, I'm sorry for whatever I did that upset you. Okay, what what did you do that upset me? You see, if they don't know what they did to upset you or what has you upset, how can they be remorseful for their part in it? And if they can't see what their part in it is or was, and they've also not demonstrated any interest whatsoever in putting forth any effort whatsoever to understand it, are they really remorseful? Think about what remorse moves you to do. And now let me ask that question again. They've put, they've demonstrated no interest in understanding their part in it, what or you know what the injustice was, and they've put in no effort whatsoever to understand that injustice or why they committed that injustice or how they could have committed that injustice. Are they really remorseful? Of course they're not remorseful. Remember, I'm sorry is literally saying, I'm remorseful for dot dot dot. They don't even know what they're supposedly remorseful for. And they're not even motivated to go out of their way to understand what that thing is. So, again, you're out on your Sunday stroll with your coffee and somebody runs up to you. Do you love it? They ask. And you turn around and you say, yeah, I do love it. Okay, the person replies, what is it that you love? <laughs> I have no idea, you answer. Oh, all right, they say. So... So your claims of loving it then are absolutely worthless, is what you're telling me. Oh, I guess so. See, these are examples you probably think border on the absurd. But is it really any less absurd when you apologize to somebody for something you don't even fully understand? You've made no genuine effort to understand it. Or is it any less absurd when somebody apologizes to you in this way, or I should say attempts to apologize to you in this way, because, as I said, that's not an apology at all. 
So it's not any less absurd. We can't feel remorse for something we don't even see or understand. And feeling remorse that somebody is upset with us, that's not a real thing. If you think that you can feel remorse for somebody being upset with you, you don't know what remorse means. You're, you're misusing the word of remorse. That's not the meaning of remorse. You can't feel remorse for what somebody else feels. Remorse is based on something you have done or not done. And somebody else feeling a thing is not an example of you doing or not doing a thing. You can regret that they feel the way they do. But you can't feel remorse that they feel that way. You can feel remorse for something you did that uh, they are now using to feel the way they feel. But you can't feel remorse about something somebody's feeling. You can only feel remorse for something you uh, had control over. Right? That you did wrong or that you failed to do. And people's feelings... That's something they're doing themselves. So you can't feel remorse over something that other people are doing themselves. So the only situations that remorse can even exist in is for things that we recognize that we personally did wrong. So, again, what others feel is not an example of something we're doing wrong. Them feeling is not an example of us doing you know we we have got no control over what other people feel we have control over what um, the, our behaviors toward other people you know, things we do to them things we say to them things like that we can feel remorse over that but you know, they can feel and will feel however they're going to feel about those things the only thing we have any control over is what is our actions so you again you can only feel remorse for something you recognize as you haven't done that you should have done differently or not at all so what is a healthy apology process and why is it called a process well you should be starting to understand why it is called a process by now because this is very important the real value in an apology is the fact that you care enough to examine honestly the situation and honestly try to understand the nuances of what it is that you did wrong. Did you pick up on that? The real value is the demonstration that you truly care. So do you see that this is where the value in a, in a real apology exists? Not in the words, I'm sorry but in the way genuinely caring motivates you. How it motivates you to investigate and honestly examine the situation. There's only one reason people don't truly try to understand what they're apologizing for. And the answer is as obvious as the nose on your face. What's the one reason people don't truly try to understand what they're apologizing for? They don't care. That's the answer. They don't care. 
Because if they did care, what would you naturally see? See, that answers the question. So they may not like being inconvenienced, and they may not like you being angry at them, and they may not like being held accountable, and they may not like the feeling of being judged. But none of these things are being born of real care or love toward you. The reason a real apology is so valuable is that when it happens, it's obvious that the person first cared enough to really meditate on the solution. The reason a real apology is so valuable is that when it happens, it's obvious that the person first cared enough to really meditate on the situation until they could understand the nuances of the offense and what it is they did wrong. So by the time the apology reaches you, or you express it to another, it's clear that the apology has real value. It's not just empty words. It reflects true concern and care for others. That is a real apology. So here's the healthy apology process. And bear in mind that this is for real injustices and serious offenses. This, so this is not something for just, you know, accidentally stepping on somebody's foot in line at the Piggly Wiggly or accidentally calling somebody by the wrong name. Still, even though this apology process is primarily appropriate for real injustices and serious offenses, this is not to say that it doesn't provide us with a healthy model for all aspects of life and dealings with people. So grab a pen and paper or get out the uh, notes app on your phone or tablet and we'll go through these. There are 12, 12 steps to the apology process. And we, uh, we understand now, right, why it's called a process. Number one, acknowledging what you did to hurt, offend him or her. Now, this is harder than what you'd think. Like my dad with that letter. He just, uh, he's like shooting a gun in the dark. Boom, boom, boom. Hoping that he will hit something that that is right. Right? He's hoping that he will hit on something that uh, that is truly um, part of his real injustices and offenses. So instead of sitting down and really spending time to truly understand what he did to hurt slash offend me, you know, the injustice, instead he's just going to shoot his gun in the dark. Boom, boom, boom. Hope it hits something. And so, going on now 10 years, this has not worked out for him. It would not be too hard for him to figure out if he would just meet my condition for having contact with me. You know, if he'd go to somebody who understands these things better and would talk to them, they could probably help him figure it out pretty quick. But he won't do that. So number one in the apology process is acknowledging what you did. So... Maybe number 1B, you can write, Imagine how what I did must have affected the other person. And it might even go something like this. You might say, This is how I imagine 
you must feel because of what I did. Think about how the fact that if you can't even acknowledge, if you can't even acknowledge what it is you did to hurt or offend the other person, how can you apologize for that? You can't. Number one, acknowledging what you did to hurt or offend the other person is prime time, man. It's uh, Without it, your apology is worthless. You have to acknowledge it. And if you try to acknowledge it, and the other person says, well, that's, that's not what's bothering me, it's time to go back to the drawing board, drawing board and sit down and think about it some more. Number two, learn how what you did impacted him or her. So, how do you learn how what you did impacted the other person? The way you do that is you give that person a chance to tell you for themselves how they feel. And you listen. You don't defend yourself. You listen. Number three, express an understanding of that impact. So you've sat with them, you've given them a chance to tell you for themselves how they feel. So now you're going to express an understanding of that impact. And the way you do this is that you clarify, this is how I imagined it impacted you. And now I understand that this is actually how it really impacted you. So you clarify between what you imagined and what, and what that impact really was for them. Number four, make restitution where needed and possible. Number four, make restitution where needed and possible. Maybe they don't want restitution. So I would say, first of all, you have to evaluate whether that they're even open to that, right? But restitution is replacing, restoring, compensating, etc. But again, let's say that you robbed your uh, your next door neighbor. You get here down to uh, number four and make restitution. Well, the neighbor doesn't have to forgive you, right? Your apology does not guarantee forgiveness. Just remember that. So don't go into an apology feeling entitled to forgiveness. You don't, they don't owe you anything. And your reason for giving an apology is not out of a sense of entitlement that if you give an apology, you are absolutely guaranteed of forgiveness. So let's say that you've robbed your next door neighbor of his goat, right? He had a prize goat. You went over there, he stole that goat, and you're enjoying the best goat's milk in all of your neighborhood neighbor finds out you go through the apology process you get to make restitution but he's he doesn't want anything to do with you you try to bring over a brand new goat because the other goat died the other goat got COVID-19 dropped over dead so you trying to bring over another goat you think it's even better than the first goat but that the neighbor doesn't want anything to do with you. So, what do you got to do? You got to respect the neighbor. That's why number four says make restitution where needed and possible. 
part of that possible is is the person even open to that if they're not restitution involves leaving them alone number five learn how you did what you did probably my favorite one because if a person is motivated to learn how how they did what they did to me that demonstrates real remorse so number five learn how you did what you did you want to examine the thoughts the perspectives that you live with that allowed you to do that at all the decisions behaviors before during and after your offense number six learn why you did what you did so you've gone to effort you've put in effort to learn how you did what you did thoughts decisions behaviors now you want to understand why you did what you did your underlying motivations was it fear was it revenge was it numbing out was it addictions was it coping mechanisms number seven explain to the person that you have uh, committed the injustice against explain to him or her how and why you did what you did so first you have spent the time learning how you did what you did and you spent the time honestly examining why you did what you did now you're going to explain it to the other person here's how here's why honestly number eight identify what you need to do to never repeat that again that offense number nine now that you've identified what you need to do to never repeat that behavior number nine is share your plan of of action with the other person so number eight was you sat down to your by yourself you worked out the details of exactly how to avoid ever doing that again and number nine is you're sitting down with the other person you're saying i figured out i think a way that i can avoid ever uh, treating you that way again and this is the way i'm going to ensure it number 10 overtly apologize again express sorrow express remorse and express a commitment not to repeat the hurtful behaviors number 11 now is the time to ask for forgiveness and a chance to restore trust 11 is kind of important remember I said you're not, that nobody's obligated to forgive you but you're asking for them to and you're asking for a chance to restore trust what if they say no there's no chance to restore trust here uh, I'm done you respect that you move on what if they say I don't grant you forgiveness right now I need more time I may never 
be in the right place to grant you forgiveness. What do you do? Well, if your apology means anything, you respect them and you say, okay, I understand that. Because I truly do understand the gravity of my offense. But after you've done all these things, you're down here to number 11, You, it is appropriate for you to at least ask for forgiveness. You, you've earned the right to ask for it. And you've earned the right to ask for a chance to restore trust. The answer might be no, uh, but you can ask for it. And in most cases, I think, especially if you've done number one through ten, um, most people, most reasonable people, will be impressed and willing to uh, to grant you that. And finally, number twelve. It's very simple. Follow through. Number 12 is follow through. And that's it. That's the apology process. As you can see, it's a lot more involved than just saying I'm sorry. And again, this is not for like, you know, accidentally bumping somebody in line at the movie theater. We're talking about real offenses, real injustices here that you commit against other people. All right, I promised you a campfire story. The kid's name was Jose, and uh, I had invited some folks over to my apartment in the city. And uh, Jose, I had a a patio out back. This is a big apartment complex, but it was all like one story apartment complex, and it had this really nice spread with like a, a pond and fields out back and everything and a real nice patio up back with sliding glass doors and I invited all those people over to my apartment and um, one person there had a little uh, son named Jose and uh, Jose was about five years old and uh, he come out back there I was telling him stories and whatnot he kind of looked up to me as I say he was about five years old I think at this time and um, so it was just him and me I had the the sliding doors open and I was sitting out back sipping on some booze and old Jose he come out there kicked up his feet and we were talking you know man to man and uh, uh, along the uh, duration of this conversation I found out that Jose was quite uh, fond of Batman. In fact, uh, Batman was somebody he was really, really impressed with. <laughs> and I said, well, Jose, uh, it's kind of ironic that you're just such a big fan of Batman. And he said, why's that? I said, well, your mom didn't tell you? He, he says, tell me what? I said, well, um, my neighbor, right next door here uh, she is Batman's sister um, I just found out the other day I was talking to her and uh, it just turns out that she's Batman's sister he says get out of here and I said no, well, no I'm serious uh, yeah I was talking to her I was, a, I was I'm a, as surprised about it as you are uh, just talking to her there and you know I, she's very unassuming and everything and 
but the longer I got to talk to her, uh, we got to talk about superheroes and everything. And she's like, "Well, what? Who's your favorite superhero?" And I said, "Superman." And she said, "Superman." And I said, "Yeah, I like Superman." And she said, "Well, that wasn't really the answer I was hoping to hear." And I said, "Oh, well, what were you hoping to hear?" And she said, "Well, uh, Batman." And I said, "Well, I like Batman, but he's..." You know he can't fly or anything can't shoot lasers out of his eyeballs or anything like that she said well I gotta admit I'm a little biased and I said what what do you mean by that and she said well Batman's my brother and I said you're you're kidding me are you for real and she said yeah he's he's my brother I said what prove it and so she took me into her apartment and she showed me all this Batman stuff she had. And um, she, I said, well, then you let me talk to him. So she got on the phone and she dialed up Batman. And I got to talk to Batman for a few minutes. Jose was sitting there with eyes, I'm telling you. They were like, <laughs> they were as big as dinner plates. And it's <laughs> little five-year-old Jose. <laughs> And his mouth was hanging open. And he said, I wish I had a picture of him. <laughs> and it was it was all I could do to tell this story. <laughs> without without giving myself away and uh, laughing. And he was sitting there with his eyes all wide open, mouth hanging open. And he said, no way. You talked to Batman. And I said, yeah, sure enough. She got him on the line, and uh, Batman and I talked for about all two or three minutes, and then he was like, uh, "Excuse me, I gotta go. I gotta go fight crime down here. Um, the Joker is is uh, causing chaos down here." And uh, and then he was just gone, and Jose couldn't believe it. And I said, "Jose, I tell you what, buddy." If <laughs> If you go next door here, <laughs> so remember, we're sitting in the back patio uh, from the sli- glass sliding door, and my neighbor's my neighbor's glass sliding door. I didn't even know her. I had I'd said like three words to her my entire life. <laughs> so I said, Jose, if you go over there and knock, <laughs> if you knock on her glass sliding door. Just go over there, knock on her door, and when she answers the door, you tell her that uh, you're you're visiting me, and that you really love Batman, and and ask if you <laughs> ask if you can call Batman on her phone. <laughs> the reason why it's so funny to me <laughs> is because. <laughs> I was really giving it all I had, man. I wanted to see him. <laughs> I really wanted to see him go next door and knock on her door. <laughs> I wanted to see that whole... <laughs> I wanted to see how that whole interchange take place. Hi. I, I, I want to I talk to Batman on your phone. <laughs> and I wanted to watch her confusion while she tried to figure out what was going on. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he goes over there <clears throat> and he does it. He knocks on her door and he knocks and knocks. He comes back over and he says, hey, nobody's answering over there. I said, go over there and give it another try, Jose. He went over there, knock, knock, knock. Nobody answered. And then his mom uh, poked her head out the window at uh, the doors. She said, Jose, we got to go. Man, he didn't want to go. No, no, we can't go, Mom. We can't go. I got, I got to talk to the neighbor. And his mom said, like, what? You got to talk to the neighbor. And I just kind of winked at her, and I was like, yes, kind of let her know, you know, that there was an ongoing joke there. Oh, come on, Jose. So she left, and... <laughs> And for like a year and a half after that, <laughs> his mom hated my guts because that was all he talked about was getting back over to my apartment so that he could go next door <laughs> and talk to Batman <laughs> on my neighbor's phone who was a complete stranger. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. I'll tell you where I got the idea for that. And uh, I told that, you guys remember in, I think, season two of this show, I was doing <laughs> uh, these uh, encouraging finales at the end of each show. And um, I told the story about when I went to uh, stay with my aunt, Rachel, <laughs> one summer in uh, Indiana. And I went there, and I was... Uh, I was in my early 20s, I think. I might have been 19. I might have even not been 20 yet. But uh, she invited me down, spent a week with her and her husband. Uh, Jim was his name. I said, sure, I'll come down there. We'll have all kinds of fun stuff. And one morning I got up, come out of my room, <laughs> wiping the sleep out of my eyes and kind of like <laughs> bouncing off furniture like a ping pong machine, you know, like you do when you first wake up and your brain's not totally awake. I get to the table, and Jim's sitting there eating eggs and bacon. He goes, uh, hey, Brian, do you like baseball? Well, at the time, I wasn't a huge baseball fan. And I said, well, sure, I, I guess I do. And he goes, uh, I wasn't a big sports fan at all, uh, of any sport. Of course, now I love baseball. But at the time, it was just kind of like, give or, you know, I could take it or leave it. And uh, – so he's sitting there eating his bacon and eggs, and he goes, uh, "Do you love? Do you like baseball?" I said, "Well, yeah, I guess so." He says, "Do you know who Pete Rose is?" I said, "Sure, I know who Pete Rose is." He said, "Look out there, uh, out the back window there." He said, "You see that house back there?" I said, "Yeah." And um, my aunt was in there in the kitchen, like milling about. <clears throat> he goes, "Tell, tell him about that house, uh, Rachel." So my aunt just picks up right where he leaves off i mean they, they haven't pre-planned this or anything they haven't talked about this they've never pulled this joke they've never had they just come up with it spontaneously right on the spot and they just fed off one another she says oh oh yeah that house back here she says if you go back here um and you take a baseball they'll have pete rose sign it for you and i said what how will they do that and uh, Jim, it's sort of like tag team, back and forth. Jim goes, well, they're family. They're, they're relation to uh, Pete Rose. I said, get out of here. Are you for real? Yeah. You just, so you, if anybody, if you just take a baseball back here to him, 
you say i'd like hey i've heard that you're uh, related to pete rose i'd love to have this baseball signed by him they'll get her done and then they said nothing about it jim just went right back to eating his eggs and bacon and uh you know my aunt rachel went back to doing her stuff and so i sat down and started eating my breakfast and I, I couldn't get that out of my head so as the week went on I was thinking about that I was driving at the time they were at work one day I went over to Kmart or uh, Walmart or Target or someplace I went and I uh, I bought a baseball went back they, they still weren't home I walked back here all the way back to their neighbor's house knocked on the door and I said a lady answered the door I said hi she said hello kind of confused like what are you doing here I said hi I'm uh yeah I'm, I'm Brian I'm just standing back here with my my aunt Rachel and her and her husband Jim and um and I held out my hand with that baseball and I said uh I, I was just kind of hoping maybe I could get a Pete Rose's autograph she said Pete Rose's autograph I said yeah she looked down at that ball and she said why are you asking me I said well because you're related and she said I'm related to who Pete Rose she says who told you I was related to Pete Rose I said well the other day at breakfast my my aunt and uncle they were telling me that um, you're related to him that if I brought you a a baseball back here that you could get him to autograph it for me she said Hun, I think, I think your aunt and uncle are pulling a joke on you. <laughs> and that was when I realized I'd been had. Oh man! And <laughs> I wanted to die at the moment. But as I walked back there to uh, my aunt and uncle's house, and I started thinking about the genius of that. <laughs> I just never been able to forget that. That was just genius, and they come up with it completely on the spot. So, there's my campfire story. I took it. I pulled it on old Jose, and he's now yeah, he's he's almost as big as me. So there might be a day when he comes over and breaks my arm or something, but for putting him through that. But now that I've told you, you all are welcome to go and pull that practical joke on the on the person closest to you and just get a good old kick out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this show. I'll talk to you real soon. Join us over there on Locals, will you? TheLastSymptom.Locals.com